Philippians 1, 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So we're working our way uh, through the book of Philippians. The, the book of Philippians with this, this teaching series that we've been calling For Our Joy. For Our Joy. And the reason that we're calling it that, the sort of big idea behind uh, the book of Philippians, one of its major themes is that our deepest joy can be only found in Jesus. I mean, every single one of us is, is peddling after joy in some sense, right? Like we're trying to find uh, some deep satisfaction uh, in our lives. But the big idea in the book of Philippians is that our deepest joys, our greatest pleasures can only be found in Jesus. He changes everything. It changes the way our, our, it changes our relationships, the way that you view the church. It changes the way that you suffer adversity. It changes the way that, that even the way that you live your, a life worth living, how you define that, and how you define what it means to die a death worth dying. The Apostle Paul is someone who really pondered over this. He really pondered over what does it mean to live well. What does it mean to die well? The Apostle Paul is someone who really pondered over this. you got to remember that he's writing this letter. He's writing the book of Philippians uh, to this church in Philippi that he deeply loves. This church there, while, that he's, he's, while he's writing this letter, he's uh, in prison. He's awaiting trial before Caesar. And it's from those chains from those chains that he begins to unpack the meaning of life and the glory of death. And so I want us to look at the words of Paul in our text this morning and walk through three points. Three points, we're going to see how Jesus gives us first a life worth living. Secondly, a death worth dying. And lastly, uh, a ministry that magnifies, a ministry that magnifies him. And so let's look at that first point, a life worth living. Remember at this point, Paul's in prison, right? And his his future at this point is uncertain. He has no idea what's going to happen next for him. He's been accused of false crimes behind bars waiting for his verdict. His life seems like a total wreck. Yet in reading his letter to the Philippians, it's like what we're getting is, is it was almost like reading over their shoulders as they're reading this for the first time. It's like we're reading over their shoulders into the heart and mind of Paul. And what we see is that he's got this ambition in life that gives him joy and purpose even while he waits in prison. Begin reading with me in verse 18. 
Verse 18, the last half of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Which again is crazy for him to say this. It's crazy for him to say, yes, and I will rejoice because he's awaiting his trial. In the last verses we went through last week, we saw that, that he's got, there, there's this group of people uh, that are kind of rejoicing in the fact that Paul's in prison. They're taking advantage of the fact that, that Paul's in prison and they're trying to, uh, to make a name for themselves, for their own ministries while he's behind bars. And so we talked about how Paul found joy in adversity last week, even through those trying hard situations. And here, in the last half of verse 18, he says again, yes, and I will rejoice. Rejoice. Crazy. Can you imagine living behind bars, awaiting your trial with, with, with critics and haters uh, lobbing insults at you uh, from outside the prison? Can you imagine living with that kind of adversity, with that kind of anxiety about the future, about what could be next? And he should be a wreck. But instead, he's filled, we see, with joy. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why is he filled with joy? Look at verse 19 with me. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I know that through your prayers, church, through your love for me, and through the way that the Spirit of God answers those prayers and being there for me, that, that this will turn out for my deliverance. In other words, he's saying, I'm sure that God will work through your prayers to turn this really bad situation, being imprisoned and abandoned, and work that somehow for my deliverance. Now, you need to know that when Paul talks about his deliverance, he's probably not talking about his deliverance from prison, which is what we normally think of when we're reading it quickly. Right? He's probably not talking about deliverance from prison. We, we know this because uh, when you actually look at the original language here, you recognize that he's quoting from Job 13. How many of you guys are familiar with the book of Job? Right? If you're new to the Bible, it's what you call it, the book of Job, right? But uh, Job, think like George Oscar Bluth, right? Job, you're familiar with the book of Job. The book is named after a guy named Job who also suffered pain and adversity, just like Paul. Different circumstances, but still suffered pain, still suffered adversity. And Job suffered these things even though he didn't do anything wrong. Also similar to Paul, Job was surrounded by people who would lob these insults over at him. They would say, look, these bad things are happening to you, Job, because God probably hates you, right? Because you probably like ticked him off somehow. And in Job 13, verses 15 through 16, I'll read this in the NIV. Job says, though he, though the Lord slay me, yet I will hope in him. Even though he's allowing these bad things to happen to me, I will hope in him, verse 16, indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, right there in Job 13, Job is saying, even though my life on the outside is filled with pain and suffering, even though my life on the outside is filled with adversity and I'm being insulted because of it, Job is saying, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He's saying, I know I will be vindicated. That's the type of deliverance that Job is talking about here. 
He's saying, I know that in the end, I'm going to be vindicated. I know that in the end, you're going to see that I'm in the right, that God doesn't hate me like you say he does, and that my faithfulness in this situation will not be wasted. Job had people, he had, uh, he had his wife even telling him, like, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Thanks, honey, right? <laughs> Like he had all kinds of, uh, like his, his friends were lobbing insults at him. His, his neighbors were criticizing him. His wife was like, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job, when he's, he's praying this prayer, he's like, even go, God, will, God slays me. Even though he allows this to happen to me, yet I will hope in him. Indeed, this will turn out with my deliverance. The sense is that he's saying, uh, I know that in the end, all these people will see that I'm in the right. They'll see that God doesn't hate me. And that my life of faithfulness, even in this situation, my refusal to curse God, my faithfulness in this moment will not be wasted. And Paul, when he says, um, I know that I rejoice knowing that, that through your prayers, the help of the Spirit of Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's, he's, he, it's almost like he's been reflecting on Job's life. He's been reflecting on Job's life and how in somewhat, in the same way that Job was vindicated in the end, Paul's saying, I'm going to be vindicated too. Through your prayers, through me receiving strength in the spirit, I know that I can be faithful to the end. I know that I can finish this without cursing God, without giving up. Just like Job persevered to the end, Paul says, so will I. Some of you, some of you this morning who are, are, are followers of Jesus, you, you might be trying to live faithfully for Jesus, but you find that, that you're, you're getting criticized for it. You might have people in your life that in, in, in maybe a different form or fashion are saying things like, man, you're, like, your, your life has been so hard. Why, why do you keep trying to, to you know, follow Jesus? Why don't you just curse God, right? Why don't you just... Give in. Maybe you have people in your life that mock you or lob insults at you because you're, you're a married follower of Jesus and you refuse to, to check out that girl walking by. Or maybe as a citizen, you just refuse to, to fudge on your taxes like your friends do, to sort of cheap, cheat the system, game the system. And they, they insult you because of it. Maybe the people around you will call you a killjoy because you won't let yourself get drunk at that party with them. Maybe your family thinks it's weird that you'd rather be at church worshiping Jesus on the Lord's Day than, than at that all-you-can-eat uh, brunch that they like to go to on Sunday mornings. I had a friend like that who every time he saw me with an open Bible in front of me at the, at the coffee shop, he'd, he, he'd walk over to me and start hammering me for, for reading what he called a book written by some sky fairy. Right? He happens to be a Christian now. But at the time, he would say, why are you wasting your time reading that book? And man, these are all small things. Small things compared to what Paul was going through. In chains, in prison. People he used to serve in ministry alongside, taking advantage of the fact that he's behind bars. People criticizing him, not knowing if he's going to live another week while he's in chains. And when Paul says, this will work out for my deliverance, what he's saying is, he's saying, I know 
that there will be a day that all will finally see that the Jesus that I am following, the Jesus that I am worshiping is real. And he's risen. And he's Lord. And then all will see that all that I did in honoring him with my body and honoring him with my mind was good and right. And that I am living a life worth living. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, I know that this will come out for my deliverance. He's saying, I know that I will not be ashamed like my critics say I should be. That's what he clarifies here in verse 20. Read this with me. In verse 20, he says, as it is my eager expectation and hope. Now, now really quick, when Paul uses that word hope, when Paul uses that word hope, it's stronger than how we, we tend to use the word hope today. Like it, It's not like when we say, I hope the Warriors make a comeback tomorrow. Or I hope it cools down later today. Right? When Paul uses that word hope, the Greek word elpida, where, there, where there's no uncertainty in that word. No uncertainty. It's a confident hope. It's a sure hope. It's a strong hope that rests in a powerful and sovereign God. Paul says, it is my eager expectation and a hope, that kind of hope, that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored, magnified, made much of in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul's saying, I know this will turn out for me. I know that in the end, it might not be today, it might not be next week, it might be on the other side of eternity, but I know that this will work out for my deliverance, that my faithfulness will be revealed to have not been in vain. I will not be ashamed when that happens. And with full courage now, because of that now and always, I want Christ to be honored. I want him to be magnified, made much of, exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to make much of him by the way I live my life, even if that means I have to die, die for him. Let's talk about the body here. Let's talk about the body. See, when we think about our bodies, and think about it, when you think about your body, what do you think of? You think of one of two things. How you, how you feel about it, how you feel right now, right? Like, it is, how's my breakfast settling, right? Or two, how it looks. Right? When we think about our bodies, we think about how we look or how we feel. But Paul, he sees his body as merely a tool, a vessel to be used for God's purposes. He's not unconcerned about how he, his, his body feels. I'm not saying that he doesn't care about that. But he sees it primarily as a tool, as a vessel. He's saying, look, when I stand before all men, even when I'm called before Caesar in a moment, in all things and at all times, I want to make Jesus known through my body. I want to make Jesus known at all times through my life, through my body, through the whole of who I am. It all exists to make Christ honored, exalted, magnified through me whether it's through my life or through my death, I don't care as long as it's to make much of Jesus. As long as it's to brag on my Lord, that's how I want to be used. Can you say that? Can we say that about ourselves? 
That man, I, because I know that I'll be vindicated for my faith with full courage, with full bravery, with full resolve now as always, Jesus will be honored, made much of in my body. With all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I want him to be honored in and through me. That, Paul says, is a life worth living. A life that says, may Christ be honored in me and all that I do. Secondly, we see in Paul some words on a death worth dying. Death worth dying. Now, this verse right here is like our big theme for the morning. It's one of the most quoted verses in the Bible, and I think for good reason. Read verse 21 with me. Verse 21, he says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Remember, Paul has that ironclad confidence, right? That, that Christ is going to be magnified through his life. He says, this is my eager expectation and a hope that Christ will be honored in and through me. Why? He says in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This verse is the heartbeat of our passage this morning. Many scholars say that, that, like Bible scholars will say that this verse is kind of the heartbeat of the whole letter, of the whole book of Philippians. As a matter of fact, um, this, this is pretty rad to, to learn this this week, is that this verse actually, in the original language, has the cadence of a heartbeat in the original Greek. It happens to be the heart of this passage, the heart of, as many say, the book of Philippians, and it actually itself has the cadence of a heartbeat. This is like classic first century uh, ancient Near East rhetoric. They're so much more poetic back then and and more thoughtful than than we are today. I want you to look at at just the way that the the Greek looks. You'll you'll notice um, the, the, the first couple letters or sounds are similar for both lines, right? And you'll notice that the last uh, couple letters are are the same on on both lines as well. It literally sounds like this. And in the Greek, that says, Ta zen Christos, ta apothainen kerdos. Ta zen Christos, ta apothainen kerdos. It's like this heartbeat sound. Ba, 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 right? Why does that matter? Why does that matter? you got to remember that this was a letter that was written to an entire church in Philippi. And the custom was when a church would receive a letter from somebody that, that they knew, somebody that they loved, when they received a written message, you had to read that letter out loud during one of the gatherings like, like we're doing right now. They had like no Instagram announcements, no MailChimp like newsletters that you could subscribe to back then. That didn't come for like at least another 10 years give or take. And when the church got to this part in Paul's letter, when they got to this part of Paul's letter and they'd hear this line, ta zen Christos, ta apathainen kerdos, they would hear this part with alliteration and with rhyme and it would stick out like a sore thumb when they heard it. It would stick out and it would, it would sear into their memory, this line. One scholar says, this is the drumbeat repetition of, of similar sounds. 
this we could say is like Paul's heartbeat. We might not get the full effect in like our English translations, uh, but you can, you can kind of get the, the full heart of it, right? That's what matters. And to drive it home even more, to really pound it in, 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 in the Greek here, there, there are actually no verbs in this. There's no verbs. There's no word is in, in this. It, it literally leads living Christ, dying gain. Living Christ, dying gain. In many of our translations, for to live is Christ, to die is gain. Living Christ, dying gain. But what does this mean? What is this? If this is the heartbeat of Paul's passage in his letter, what does it mean? It means that the deeper meaning, the deeper meaning, the bedrock foundation behind both living and dying for Paul is Jesus. Jesus is, our, is the bookends of his life. Jesus is the foundation of his life. Jesus is the, found, the center of his life. In all that he does, in all that he is, Paul's saying, man, my life, what it means to live for me, how do I describe that? Christ. Dying, how do I describe that? Christ. He's saying living is all about serving Jesus for me and dying is all about being with him. Living is all about serving my Lord Jesus Christ. Dying is all about being with him. So if to live is Christ, so, so if he's saying to live is Christ, then what, what he's saying there is that that means that all of your life, all of who you are is inspired by Christ and is done for Christ. You breathe for him. You walk for him. You exist for him. It also means to live is Christ. It also means that our lives should be sort of modeled after him. So that phrase, to live as Christ, means that all of your life is inspired by him, empowered by him, lived for him. It, it, it also means that our lives should be shaped and formed and modeled after him. It's sort of like a pattern of life. And so you ask the question, you know, he, you look at the commands of the New Testament, and you ask, how do I do that? You look to Jesus. How do I love my neighbor? Look to Jesus. How do I love my enemy? Look to Jesus. How do I pray? Look to Jesus. How do I care for the marginalized, the voiceless, the oppressed? Look to Jesus. The closer you draw to Jesus, the more you live your life to the full. That's what he's saying. The more satisfying your joy becomes in him, the closer you draw to him. Now, what does he mean by death is gain? If to live is Christ and to death is gain, what does he mean by now that to, that to die is, is, is gain? How can he say that dying is gain, that we get something, right? It's because for Paul, he's saying to die is to go be with Jesus. I love Jesus so much, Paul says, that I want to live my life for him. And I love him so much that when I die, man, I, I just can't wait to be with him. Let's put it this way. Paul's saying that Christ is magnified, made much of, shown to be magnificent when I am so satisfied in Jesus 
that even when death takes me away from everything that I love in this world, I can still say that is gain. That is gain. At the end of the day, I lose nothing in my death because Jesus is all. He is enough, and I gain him. There's a helpful question for us to wrestle with when we're thinking about what it means to live as Christ and to die as gain. The question is, is what, what is, what is your why? The purpose of your life. What does it mean when, when you think about the fact that your life is going to end one day? The why behind all that you are and all that you do. What is that? What is the primary thing that drives your life? The one thing that, that sort of directs your life, your sort of spiritual or emotional GPS. What is, that, what is that thing? How would you finish the sentence, for me to live is blank? Seriously, I want you to consider that this morning. Take a stock at, at, at your, the things that you think, the feelings that you, you feel, the relationships that affect you the most, the way you spend your time and resources. How would you finish this sentence, to live is, 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 is blank? How would you finish that? Whatever your answer is, if it's not Christ, Paul says, you'll end up in loss you'll end up in a loss. For example, if you say for me to live is money and possessions, then to die is to have to leave all that behind. If you say for, 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 for me to live is recognition before others, then to die is to eventually be forgotten. If you say for me to live is my family and friends, then to die is to lose contact with them forever. If you say for me to live is sex, then to die is, is, is loneliness or, 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 or no more uh, physical pleasure. If you say for me to live is my career, then to die is to be, we could even say forever unemployed. But if you say for me to live is Christ, if he's your purpose, if he's your ambition, if he's your reality, then to die is gain. You see, Paul wants us to find our, our, wants our greatest ambition to be to live for Jesus so that dying could be gain. His greatest desire for us is that we would desire and delight in Jesus. You see, some of us think that Christianity is like anti-desires or anti-ambition. But the Bible doesn't say get rid of your ambitions. It doesn't say get rid of your desires. It's about having the right ambitions and desires. And what we see in this passage is that if living is not Christ for you, then your problem is not that your desire or your pleasure is too strong for the things of the world, but that your, 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 your desires and that your pleasures are actually too weak. That your joy is not to... Per, or that you're not... Uh, that your, your, your joy is not in, founding, in pursuing uh, pleasures to a lesser degree, but we need to pursue joy in a, like a, in a greater sense, in a greater source. Does that make sense? So like C.S. Lewis is really helpful on this point. He writes in this, in this one essay, um, it's, 
it's it's really like you'll see this quoted in a lot of books but in this one essay he writes about how we assume that if our greatest desire is something else other than God then our problem is that we're too driven by our desires he says that the problem is not that you desire too much but that you desire too little Uh, read what he says here he says our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, Christianity is not a religion of willpower to do things that we don't really want to do. That's a poor assumption of what the beauty of Christianity is. Christianity is not a religion of willpower where we just kind of muster up enough strength and willpower to do the things that we don't want to do. Christianity is a new birth. It's being born again. It's where God gives us a new heart to want him more than we want anything else. If if living for you is not Christ, it's not that, that you desire these things of the world too much. It's that you're settling. You're far too easily pleased. He's saying you got to desire more, more to the point that only Jesus could satisfy that desire. Paul can say to die is gain because Jesus is his deepest joy. And in death, he can get even more of Jesus than he ever had in life. That's why he says in verse 23, I am hard pressed between the two. He can't decide. He's like, man, should I keep on going living, serving you guys, or should I just die and be with Jesus? Verse 23, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Man, what an incredible statement. It's like, is that really better? Better than, than all my friends that I love? Better than that summer vacation that I've been looking forward to? Better than my family? Better than being loved by my by husband or my wife? Better than hugging my kids and holding my kids. Better than that long-awaited retirement that I've been working for for decades. Yes, Paul says. Yes. Paul would say a billion times over, yes. Better than all that. I am hard-pressed between the two, Paul says. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So you might be wondering, If this is how Paul feels, if this is all true for him and for us, then why doesn't he just give up? Why does he not just give up? Why does he not just chill in prison until he dies? (coughs) The answer we see is in the next few verses. I want you to read this with me. He says in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. You see, man, it would be far better for me personally to be with Christ, but to remain in the flesh, to remain here in person on this earth is more necessary on your account, this church that he loves. 
Verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. He says, I'm with you. I'm going to press in. Why? Because I want you to progress and in, 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 to, for your progress and joy in the faith. Verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Here's what I want you to see. Paul's ambition is not just to live for Christ, but because he lives for Christ, he also lives for others. I don't want you to miss that. Paul's ambition is absolutely Christ. I can't wait to be with Christ. Being with him would be better than anything else. His ambition is not just, though, to live for Christ, but also to live for others. That's our third and final point we see in here in the example of Paul that there's a ministry that magnifies Jesus. Paul lives a life worth living. He talks about a death worth dying. And ultimately, he recognizes that he has received a ministry. We all have received a ministry to magnify Jesus with our lives for the benefit of others. He says, I'm sticking around because it's more beneficial. It's more necessary for you guys. For Paul, the reality that to live is Christ is directly tied to the responsibility that he has to minister that message to others. Don't, don't, don't miss that. I'll say that again. For Paul, the reality that he's embracing, that for him to live is Christ for him to live it, it, for it, like Christ is everything, that reality is directly tied to his responsibility to minister that message to others. You see, an ambition that is centered on Jesus, like Paul who says to live is Christ, an ambition that is centered on Jesus doesn't pull you away from others. It actually equips you and empowers you to love others better. An ambition that's centered on Jesus doesn't pull you away from others, but empowers you to love them better. Some Christians get uh, accused of being so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. When we see here in the example of Paul is that when you actually are truly heavenly minded, you're of most earthly good. Some of the greatest pain that many of us have experienced in this room is a direct result of somebody who does not minister in this way. Somebody who has a misguided ambition. Rather than a sacrificial service, they employ what might be called, called a, a, a selfish service, a selfish ambition. Maybe for you, it's like a relationship or friendship that you had with someone that you thought was like mutually beneficial. Then you got betrayed by that friend. And you, when you, suddenly, when they, you, you suddenly realized you weren't useful to them anymore. And you feel betrayed by them. Or maybe you worked for this, this, like this company that you used to work for. You had a colleague or a supervisor who took advantage of your hard work and your contribution and your expertise, and they used you, trampled on you to advance their own agenda, their own career. Maybe you experienced this in the church. You were part of some church where you felt used and abandoned by those who should have been caring for you best, caring for you most. All of these are examples of selfish ambition, which apart from Christ is our natural inclination. 
apart from God's saving grace or even his common grace, we're, we're all selfish and hell-bent towards using others. And we see how, like most sins, selfish ambition pervades institutions. It hurts people when the powerful and the privileged step on others in order to get ahead, in order to stay ahead. What I want you to see is what Paul's ambition looks like from our text. Paul's ambition is to serve. Paul's ambition is to magnify Jesus, a ministry that magnifies through serving others. Even if he has to give up or put on hold the thing that he considers best for him personally, his ambition is to serve. We know his preference from verse 23 when he says, look, I want to be with Christ, but I don't think it's, but, but, but I think that even though that I want to be with him, I think it's necessary for you that I stick around, that I serve you. Although he would love to be with Christ, he knows that if he continues the work that he's doing, if he perseveres to hopefully eventually get out of prison and to serve the churches, if he dies to self and lives for Christ in that way, uh, that will result, verse 25 says, in their progress in, in, in faith and in joy. That's what he wants. He wants the believers around him, the people around them, to progress in faith and in joy. Minute. If you're not contributing to the faith and joy of the people around you, then you need to take notes from Paul's playbook here. From his posture to live as Christ and to die as gain. The fruitful labor that Paul envisions here isn't self-serving. He's not thinking, man, if I get out of here, I can write a few more books, maybe add to the New Testament plant more churches, solidify my apostle status, grow a huge platform, get that verified profile, update my LinkedIn ministry resume, give Peter a run for his money, right? Like that's nowhere on, on, on Paul's radar. The fruitful labor that Paul envisions, he says, if they release me, I want to strengthen you guys. I want to strengthen other people, build them up in the faith for their joy. Can you imagine being part of a community where people are just no longer posturing themselves up against the next person, comparing themselves and posturing themselves? Can you imagine being part of a community where people just kind of hang out with others who are different than them? Like not, not just people who make you feel secure or help you feel like you're getting ahead socially. Can you imagine being part of a community where, where everyone was for you? Like truly for you, for your growth, for your maturity. Can you imagine being part of a community where everyone was for you and not against you? Where everyone used their gifts and their resources to bless you and to encourage you, to, to serve you and to help you advance, to build you up for your progress and your joy in the faith. Man, that is Jesus' vision for his church. That is Jesus' vision for his people. And Paul embraced that. Paul said, look, for, for me to live as Christ, I want my body, my whole life to make much in honor and magnify Jesus. To me to live as Christ. To die, man, that would be gain. But for now, I'm here with you. Just like Jesus was there for me. I'm here for you, Paul says. 
So that if, you're, if you can't honestly say in your heart to live as Christ and to die as gain, Paul says, I'm here for you. So you can get in on that. So you don't have to settle for mud pies in the slums. So you can know what deep and satisfying joy in Jesus looks like. You see, if Jesus is your life, if he really is your life, if he is your reality, then just like Jesus, your life's ambition will not be to be served by others, but to serve others in a way that grows their joy in Jesus. A life that, and ministry that magnifies him. I want you to follow really quick the logic of Paul's ambition here. Follow the logic of Paul's ambition. Uh, it's, you won't see this up on the screen. But I want you to notice how in verse 20, he says he wants to make much of Jesus with his life. He says, with my body, whether I live or die, I want to, make, I want to honor Jesus. I want to magnify him. Verse 21, he says, the reason that that is is because for me, to live is Christ. And then verse 22, he says, to live is fruitful service, fruitful labor for you guys. Verse 25, he says, my fruitful labor, my fruitful service is for your progress and joy in the faith. And so if we're, if, we're, if we're following that, if we're following his argumentation here, in other words, Paul's saying, if you want to live for Christ, if you want to live for Jesus so that you honor him both in life and death, a ministry that magnifies him, then you need to sacrificially give yourself to the work of helping others find their deepest joy in him. There's deepest joy in Jesus that they would see that living is Christ and dying is gain. You see, helping others find their deepest joy in Jesus is the surest way to live for Christ. You want to live for Christ? You want to make much for him? Help others find their deepest joy in Jesus. So if they were in Paul's situation, they can say the same things that he said, and yes, I will rejoice even in this, even behind these bars. Helping others find their deepest joy in Jesus is the surest way to live for Christ. Christianity is not this caricature, this assumed caricature of, of where we beat people over the head with an old book. It's more like inviting people who are dying of thirst to drink from the well of life. And there's a man uh, by the name of David Powelson. David Powelson, is a, um, he's a... He's a biblical counselor, a prolific author. He was a seminary professor, and uh, he recently, just this week, passed, passed away of stage four pancreatic cancer. He's been battling it for like several months, uh, I, th I think a little bit over a year. Uh, and David Powelson, like few people, have led the biblical counseling movement the way that Powelson has. He's been in deep in that movement. I mean, like, there's, there's no one involved in Christian counseling, biblical, biblical counseling today that Powelson did, 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 did not pave the road for. He's been a huge influencer across denominational lines. And Powelson, David Powelson, was the kind of guy who lived for Christ and now understands what it means when Paul says to die is gain. 
now he knows the beautiful reality of what it means to say that death is gain. And I want you to see some words from, from Palson's heart in one of his uh, sort of treatises on biblical counseling. He says, if you really want to serve others well, if you want to serve others well, if you want to minister to others, he says one of the most important things is then we must know the sheer glory and goodness of what our Father has given us in Jesus Christ. To know Jesus in truth and love is to find the one thing worth finding, the one lasting happiness, the purpose of life. We must know these things. We must live these things and minister this Christ to others. You see, what Paulson understood is that if you want to serve others well, if you want to really minister to them, then man, you gotta you gotta yourself know the sheer glory and goodness of what our God has done through Jesus. You need yourself know uh, Jesus in truth and love to find the one thing worth finding that 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 He is the one lasting happiness, the one purpose of your life, the truest reality. And if you get that. If you grasp that, then and only then can you really serve others. Because the best way that you can love others is to point them to that. We must know these things. We must live these things and minister this Christ to others. If you want to live for Christ, then you need to know that Christ has lived for you. If you want to live for Christ... The most important thing is that you know that Christ has lived for you. If you want to know that dying is gain, like Paulson is now experiencing with Jesus, then you need to know that Christ has walked through the valley of death for you. He has walked through the shadow of suffering for you. And that because of Jesus, death doesn't have the last say. Resurrection does. Hope does. And if you want fruitful labor in life and ministry, then think that, like, who needs to know? Then think to yourself, like, who, who needs to know the hopeful message that to live as Christ and to die as gain? If, if, if you want fruitful labor in life and ministry, think about who you know that needs to know that hopeful message that to live as Christ. That Jesus is more satisfying than anything this world has to offer. Like, who do you know that needs to know that? And then if you want fruitful, fruitful labor in life and ministry, then work and share and pray to help them find their deepest joy in Christ their Savior. Who lived for us, who died for us, and who rose for us. So that adversity and even death will lose its sting. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.